Welcome to The Local Authority, the podcast by Local Government Chronicle and TPX Impact. Each month, we bring together leading figures from within and around local government to discuss the sector's future. If you enjoy listening to The Local Authority, hit the subscribe button to have new episodes delivered to your device each month. You can share this podcast with your colleagues by going to lgcplus.com forward slash podcast. Welcome to the Local Authority. This is a podcast from Local Government Chronicle and TPX Impact. I'm Nick Golding, the LGC editor. The Local Authority brings together some of the biggest names in and around local government to discuss some of the biggest issues facing local government. The theme is one of change, how councils can change their area and themselves the better. And today, we're discussing the cost of living crisis. As inflation has hit 7%, its highest level for 30 years, much of the population is reeling. The impact of the war in Ukraine and the global supply chain disruption means the crisis is going to get worse with inflation expected to reach 10%. Inevitably, it'd be the poorest who are worst hit. With central governments having offered little in the way of effective action to help those in need so far, today we're asking how councils can help. Do they have the resources and the vision needed? And what can they do most effectively? On our panel today is Mike Brewer, who's the Deputy Chief Executive um, of, of the Resolution Foundation. We have Helen Bernard, who's the Associate Director of the Joseph Rountree Foundation and the Research and Policy Director of Pro Bono Economics. And we have Paul Frainer, who's the Partner for Local Government at TPX Impacts, and he's Director at the Institute of Economic Development. Welcome, everyone. Mike, I wanted to start with you, please. I mean, how much are living standards going to fall and for how long? Well, this is a, a time where we have to get all our superlatives out, don't we? Uh, the, the, the economic forecasts we saw them for the Bank of England uh, just, just last week at the time of recording were really absolutely terrible. Inflation, it's 7% in March and forecast by the bank to hit 10% at the end of this year. Energy price go up again. Um, I think more worryingly that the bank now think that this this squeeze on incomes, because high inflation is basically squeezing incomes, squeezing purchasing power, will also be enough effectively to tip the economy into recession uh, next year. Now it'll it'll be over again at some point. It's, it's a relatively short squeeze, but it's a very a very intense squeeze on on our incomes, on everyone's incomes. So, what evidence exists about which sections of the population are going to be worst hit? Well, this is really driven by what sort of goods and services are going up in price and, and, and the global supply chain pressures that you mentioned, Nick, I mean, they're coming mostly from energy. So that's affecting domestic energy and fuel. But then that has quickly has effects on food and food and energy are goods which are disproportionately consumed by the poor. So they make up a much higher share of low income families budgets than they do for the rich. And, and they're also essential. They're unavoidable. It's very hard to cut down on what you're spending on domestic energy or food. So that really is where the, the squeeze is going to happen. Uh, this is a very, it's very worrying that the squeeze is coming through the price of essentials uh, and it is going to bear down on, on those on low incomes 
and those in old, ineffic- old, inefficient and poorly insulated houses as well. So the Chancellor, at a national level, has unveiled this um, £18 billion support package, energy support, um, help with fuel duty, fuel duty cuts, and there's raising of the national insurance threshold. Is this going to work? Well, I don't think it's going to be enough. Um, and I think there are, well, there's, there's one huge problem with, with the package and one thing I'd really like him to do. I think that the really huge problem with the package is to do with the rate at which benefits in the state pension are indexed. Uh, and then typically, supposedly, benefits in the state pension do go up in line with inflation. That's the idea that they're supposed to protect people on benefits from changes in the cost of living. But the inflation rate the government used was the one measured last September when inflation was just 3%. And, and so the, the impact is that everybody on benefits is seeing the real value of those benefits or state pensions fall this year. At the aggregate level, that's about a £15 billion cut in spending on benefits. So that's one thing that's really missing at the moment. So the government and the government just should just do something about that right now. And then what I think we all we all need to be looking at, what the Chancellor's probably looking at, is what happens in September when Ofgem announced the price cap rise that, you know, that will take effect in October. Uh, and I think the, it's highly likely that we'll see the government do something then. Um, but it will be really nice to get an idea now of, of what sort of measures they're thinking. I mean, crucially, part of that £18 billion package you mentioned, Nick, is, you know, is, is a cut in our energy bills. It's a £200 rebate that we're all expected to get in the autumn. But on present plans, that's due to be repaid starting next spring. And there's no real sign that energy prices next spring will have, will have fallen to an extent that households will be able to afford to start paying that back. So how is it that policymakers, whether national or local, can identify those needing the most support and really target their efforts towards them? Well, we... In broad terms, you know, I've, I've given you the overview of what sort of people are going to be affected. It's definitely going to be low-income households, definitely going to be those people on benefits who are not seeing their incomes give up the cost of living. When we think about energy squeeze, it's going to depend on what sort of property you live in, which tends to mean it, it is, uh, well, that could be low-income owner-occupiers who are stuck in old energy-efficient houses, or it could be those people in the private rented sector who are, who are, like, who, you know, are facing big increases in bills. And then there'll be a group that councils need to look out for, which are those people who are finding it hard to access the council tax rebate, which, which we haven't mentioned explicitly yet, because that's part of the £18 billion package. If you're living in council tax bands A to D, you're due to a £150 rebate. That, will, of course, will happen automatically if you're on direct debit, but not otherwise. And so councils definitely need to be looking out and make, doing whatever they can to make that as easy to claim as possible, but also looking out for those people who are not entitled to it, whether they be students or living in the sort of rented accommodation where they're not, li- when they're not paying the council tax bill themselves. Do you think that's easy to do on the council tax? Because the council tax system was designed as a system whereby people pay bills rather than to give people rebates. Yeah, absolutely. I, the, the polite way of looking at this was this was an innovative uh, use of the council tax system, dreamt up by the Treasury at the start of this year as a way of returning money rather than handing it out. I think the logic behind it was that the government wanted a way of handing money back to households that was nearly universal. So by it's going to about um, 80% of all households. So they wanted something that was broad-based, uh, so they didn't want to use the benefit system, and that led them to thinking about the council tax system. But yes, absolutely, we, we're going to, we're definitely going to see the flaws in that emerge. We've already, we already, we know about some already, but we're going to see it sort of as um, 
this policy starts to become important, starts to get paper going to see where are the flaws and, and on the hard edges, the gaps, sorry. And I think the Treasury should be looking hard at whether this policy is working at getting money to those who need it most. So yes, it works as a broad-based way of handing money back to households, but whether it works effectively as a way of getting it to those who need it most is the question we are going to really should be focusing on over the next few weeks. So much of LGC's coverage, you know, we sense it can be very, very remote and our coverage reflects that. I mean, do, do you think that the flip side is that councils are more localised organisations and does it make it easier for them to target the support in the right areas? Well, it's a very good question. And I, and I think, one, the government is sort of skirting around, or rather the government is putting more and more weight on the role that councils can play in helping people with the cost of living through the, the household support fund, you know, which sort of became a became much more important during the pandemic and it's now carried it on into the cost of living crisis. So the, the central government is definitely emphasising that local authority you know, is closer to the ground and, ha- and is more able to identify households in need. Uh, I, I mean, I, I don't know whether that's true or not. I think in some cases that will be true. But it, of course, it's it's one thing being told that you, you're, you're it's one thing being able to identify those people in need. It's another thing having the policies and the powers and the ability to actually do something, do something about it. And it's definitely, definitely the case that we at Resolution think that local government support should never be thought of as an alternative to central government providing an adequate standard of living through the benefit system. So what sort of things could be done locally by councils to, to, to provide that support? Well, I think, I think it's probably more of the same. So we, we had central government talking a couple of weeks ago about the importance of benefit take-up, localised campaigns to improve take-up of benefits you know, amongst groups who maybe historically have not been, who are, who are less keen or less able to claim the benefits to which they're entitled would be be a great thing for local authorities to do, particularly if they are aware of certain communities where take-up is low. So that, that that's that's effectively free money for local residents if you can get in a coordinated and effective take-up campaign. And then I've been talking about energy efficiency just because so much of the cost of living crisis is coming through fuel. If you are able to identify, maybe there are certain parts Maybe you just look at, sorry, look at the physical properties in your area. It's because it's really in energy efficient properties that these higher fuel bills are really going to hurt. Those who which are in energy efficiency bands, um, E or F, which tends to be the you know, start of the twentieth century uh, terraced housing that's that's you know so common in, in some areas. So so some sort of scheme which is targeting the physical housing stock and asking people, have you got what you know, have you got all the insulation you need? Are you taking advantage of of well, there aren't really many, but there are still some schemes to improve energy efficiency uh, in some older homes. And um, I was quite keen to ask, you know, on the on the benefits take up. I mean, do, do councils have that knowledge themselves? Is it something they have to proactively get? I don't think local authorities know exactly who is and isn't claiming. No, so I, I this is more a case of targeted campaigns at the sort of communities who historically have had low benefit take-up rates and that, and that and that might be due to due to language or cultural issues uh, it, there's still an issue of benefit take-up problems amongst amongst some some older people so it's a case of thinking about the, the effective ways to get at those groups but no local authorities don't know on a household by household basis who is not claiming what they're entitled to uh, 
indeed not a central government, right? And that's what makes benefit take up a hard problem to solve. But it may be that local authorities, together with their partners, are in a good position to identify groups or communities where take up rates have been low historically. The other thing I was very keen to ask you was about council tax, because councils obviously hugely dependent on council tax for vast amounts of their, their income. But nevertheless, council tax is something which hits a lot of the population quite severely. It's, 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 it's a, a lot of money to pay. I mean, well, in some respects, it almost feels if you're a council, you're, you're, you're damned if you do, if, you, if, you, if you've raised council tax so you've got more money to support your local population, but you're damned if you don't because it sort of it hits the local population. So, I mean, what, what's your reading of that? Yes, absolutely. That is, a, that is a difficult position that councils and councillors are in, and they, I'm sure they will be thinking you know, very, very hard as they come to setting budgets for the next financial year. Council tax rises this April have not have not been exceptionally high. You know that they're, they're not that they're increasing less less quickly than goods and services overall. So I don't think it's right. It's not right to say council tax is driving the cost of living crisis. But yeah, I, I think it will be it will be very hard when councils come to set their budgets for the following financial year. You know, having had a year where where the stuff that councils buy is going up, you know, potentially by by ten percent. Um, and when they've seen their uh, people in their area suffering, that will be a, a really difficult year. A really, that, that'll fall, fall some difficult decisions. Um, thank you, Mike. Uh, Helen, I'm keen to speak to you. It's Helen Bernard uh, from the Joseph Rowntree Foundation. Uh, welcome. I just want to get your reading of what, what the scale is of the problem. How, how bad is the current squeeze? Um, it is getting very bad already. So we've had some very recently some new research out from the Food Foundation who are focusing in on food insecurity, so people who can't afford to eat properly. And what their latest data is showing is a really big jump between January and now in the number of people who are having to cut back on food or skip meals. So in January, it was about 4.7 million people, uh, adults, and by the time we got to April, it was 7.3 million adults, so people who cannot afford to eat properly. And obviously, people in that situation are generally also cutting back on all sorts of other things. And we've heard, you know, anecdotally, there are lots of kind of stories around about what people are doing about this. So there was one, somebody trying to heat bake beans over a candle because they didn't want to turn the oven on. And I just heard the London Fire Brigade have apparently issued a warning saying, please don't start a fire in your house to keep warm. So think we're getting both the statistics and the stories are coming through. And you can see it in uh, demand on charity services. So if you look at Citizens Advice, they track the number of queries they get. It's at a record high, the number of debt queries particularly. And you're seeing that with food banks as well. People are seeing a level of demand now that they just can't meet. So it is, it is already, you know, really pretty dire. And what we're currently hearing from the government is let's just wait and see how much worse it can get by autumn, which just feels like a fairly brutal dismissal of what people are going through already. Is there a precedent for things getting this badly, this, this bad, this quickly? Um, I can't think of one in current, in, you know, recent history. So we have, I mean, we have seen, I think one of the things about this crisis is it's not sudden and it's not unexpected. I think a lot of the debate about it at the moment, it's as if this has blown up really recently. 
it's completely out of the blue and it's all about kind of global pressures and the war in Ukraine. Now, obviously, inflation going up this fast is to do with those global pressures. But what isn't is the number of people who are incredibly vulnerable to it. So if you look back over the last decade, what we've seen is more people being pulled into poverty, deep poverty and destitution going up. And the social security system in eight of the last 10 years, we've seen the value of benefits reduced with cuts and freezes. What that's meant is we've entered this really difficult global situation with a very low level of, of resilience. And it's those two things combining that are creating this these dire situation for people. When you talk about this not being a sudden crisis and it, 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 it it's a rising every period of time, I mean, what, what other things have exacerbated poverty over the last decade or so? I mean, some of the big things, so are housing costs, actually. So you have an awful lot of people who are in poverty if you take into account how much money they're having to spend on housing costs, particularly rent. And if they were pay, if that wasn't the case, they wouldn't actually be in poverty. So that is particularly about the reduction in social housing, so people can't get access to it, who probably would have done 10 or 20 years ago. And more and more people crowding into the private rented sector, where rents have always been high. And so even before all of, you know, the kind of high inflation, you're already seeing you know, numbers of people who were having to cut back on food and other essentials in order to keep up with the rent. We've been seeing homelessness rising in recent years. And the biggest driver of that is people getting evicted from private rented sector homes because of the lack of protection and the high rents. So that's one big thing. The other thing is the quality of work. So the kind of change around we've had in the last couple of decades is the majority of people in poverty are now in working households. So we've had record employment several times in recent years, but too many people are in jobs that are low paid, but also particularly are insecure. So they're going in and out of work. They don't know what shifts they're working from one week to the next. They're not getting training. They're not getting the chance to work their way up to a better paid job. So you've got people stuck in this position, kind of trapped between insecure, expensive housing, low paid, insecure jobs, and a social security system that's been eroded to the point that it's not protecting people from those things. So all of that together combines to kind of trap people in this situation. So when I look at those causes of poverty you've just talked about, I mean, social housing, that's obviously an area where, of council's responsibility. But I mean, it, it's it's pretty difficult for councils to, to build council housing without facing the risk of it being sold off very quickly. I mean, what can councils actually do about that? Uh, so, yes, I mean, absolutely. I think that councils do have a certain amount of choice about the mix of housing they choose to prioritise, about whether they allow planning for new homes to go ahead. There are some of those things, whether they're actually allowing building in their area to ease pressure on the housing market. But actually on the labour market side, councils can do a lot. So a lot of people will know the kind of growth of the inclusive growth approach to local economies has been building over recent years. And you've now got quite a lot of cities and city regions across the country who have taken a decision that they want to shape their local economy to create not just more jobs, but better jobs and allow residents to access those jobs. And there's real basics like, where do your bus routes go? So do you have a bus system which will get people from where they live to where the jobs are 
Is it going at the right times of day? Is it going frequently enough? Can they afford it? So that's, you know, those are kind of very basic things. If you can get local transport right, if you can get local childcare right, if you can get the social infrastructure there, there is also thinking about things like employment support. So designing employment support and skills provision to be kind of tailored to the groups that need it most and getting them into jobs which are in kind of growth areas with decent wages and progression. So you kind of there are councils and local authorities who are doing a lot of those things and they are helping their residents get into work, which is much more protective. Looking at the more immediate things that you can do um, in, in, in the short term to help people through the squeeze, I just wonder whether you think that the enormous effort made by councils during COVID to, to ensure support was targeted in the right areas, is that something that could set a precedent now? Yes, absolutely. And I think one of the things we saw during COVID was councils working really closely with voluntary and community groups and with particularly taking, so moving from a situation where a lot of councils were relating to voluntary and community groups very much through contracting, through short-term project funding and not always with a lot of kind of give and take. And actually during COVID, one of the things that we were hearing from civil society groups was there had been a real step change in some places to mutually work together and actually holding on to that, shifting towards this kind of longer term approach to strategic relationships, to core funding. That can be quite transformative at a local level because it enables communities and community groups to put all their energy into helping, reducing the kind of wasted time and energy you get where they're having to continually apply for short-term project funding which diverts them from doing what they are really good at. And obviously, me and Mike talked about income maximisation, benefit take-up. There's one example a few years ago in Hartlepool. There was a coalition of community groups and others. They had a big focus on take-up, and they managed to put over a million pounds into the residents' pockets through advice and support uh, to take up benefits, to make savings, to access support. So getting those things right and getting the local welfare assistance scheme right you know, some of them are great, some of them are not there, some of them are really threadbare, hard to access, they give out vouchers, not cash, they're not linked up to other support. Getting those things right can help, you know, people not tip over the brink into, you know, the worst situation. We've, we've just had a decade of austerity, council budgets are not what they, what they were. Is that something which will inevitably have an impact on council's ability to respond or do they just need to overcome that and be innovative with with what they've got? I, th- I mean, of course, it's going to have an impact, you know, the kind of, and the amount that it's not just having a decade of it, it is the sheer amount of money councils have lost. You know, there are councils whose budgets are going down, have gone down by 40% upwards. You know, that there's no way that can not affect what you can do. And I know that a lot of councils there have had to focus in on delivering statutory services and a lot of these other teams have been hollowed out. But I think there are examples where councils are still being innovative, overcoming those things, finding ways to work with other organisations locally, which can plug some of those gaps. So I think, yes, you know, you just have to accept that councils are under massive pressure, but there's still things they can do. And of course, the more they can help their residents with debt, with not getting into these appalling situations, 
that does help them in the long term because when you have lots of your residents getting into really serious hardship, that then impacts on their health, on their education, on family relationships, on homelessness, on crime, on all these other things that will drive up costs elsewhere. So trying to carve out, I guess, space and money for prevention is really important, even in this kind of tough financial circumstances. Finally, I wanted to ask you about levelling up, because levelling up is supposedly the government's driving force. And by its very definition, it should presumably mean about um, supporting those most in need. Is this an opportunity for local governments to really get proactive in terms of um, supporting those who have been most left behind? I mean, yes, absolutely. I think, you know, we've obviously, the actual policy and funding behind levelling up isn't what I think any of us would like it to be yet. But there is still money there. So we've just seen the new Shared Prosperity Fund, finally, the allocations published. I mean, it's 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 not enough money and it's not being allocated in a brilliant way, but it is still there. It is still an opportunity for councils to draw on it and to try and, you know, focus it in on the things that will most help their residents. And it's not going away, even if the kind of brand of levelling up comes and goes. The idea that we need to do something about geographical inequality is here for the long term. So it's worth putting together long term strategies for it. Brilliant. I'm going to turn, thank, you, thank you, Helen. I'm going to turn to you now, now Paul. Um, you're part of the local government at TPX Impact. Um, I just, and you've recently moved there from being a local government officer yourself. I mean, I, I just wanted to ask you, I mean, do you get a sense that councils have the resources at their disposal to actually get really, really involved in supporting their population, both to the short term and, and the longer term as well? I think it's really interesting, Nick. And I mean, there's so much to kind of unpack with both what Mike and Helen have previously said. And your point around a previous eight to 10 years of austerity is absolutely true. And I think that we can look at short term and what we might do this year to kind of relieve pressures, but we can't also lose sight of the fact that actually some things we need to be putting into place now that's going to be, this is not going to just stop after 2022. It's just going to, you know, it's going to be exacerbated by all of the inflation costs this year. And even when that finishes, we're still going to have huge areas of deprivation and poverty that councils are going to have to deal with. And I think the, the problem for councils, and Helen made a good point in terms of some council budgets are down 40%. It's where within those councils those budgets have been hit the most. Now, a lot of those more overt services that have not have not been cut so much because it would have been very, very difficult politically to do that. But the ones that have been are around planning and housing and economic development. You know, up to 40 or 50%, I think, of budgets in those areas have gone over the last few years. And these are the proactive areas, essentially, where you know, from the economic development perspective, you're looking at skills and improving access to skills and jobs and better paid jobs in those areas and looking at the local economy. In housing, certainly, I mean, council's responsibility to be able to deliver their own social housing, plus the opportunities of delivering affordable housing through kind of regeneration programmes, again, has been something that I think is important. It has continued, but I think that the skills are just not there. Councils find it very difficult to hold on to good expertise and skills in those areas because they simply don't have big enough funds to support those areas. And, you know, I think that this is a real worry. I don't see that improving necessarily. And, and I'm not, you know, I'm not sure. I think that, you know, there are lots that councils can be doing right now, I think, and, and moving their, you know, moving their funding around to support 
on the immediate, but going forward long term, I think that there really needs to be some thought around how they structure or organize themselves to be a little bit more joined up in the approaches to kind of delivering, thinking about their policy, whether it's planning policy or housing policy. So, so what can they do on that joining up thing? How, how can they restructure themselves in that, that sort of way? Well, you know, so this conversation, you know, unfortunately, a lot of the time, actually, a lot of local government f- sees itself primarily as a service provider, whereas actually it has a really strong impact on policy. And, you know, it doesn't just deliver national policy. It's not, it's not, that's not what councils do. They, they create policy around housing and anti-poverty around planning. And yes, planning is like a, a you know, much blunter tool, but actually aligning those policies would be a, a good start in terms of thinking about how that they, all of them were together coming across as one. So it actually informed the services. And, you know, instead of dealing with failure demand going forward, it was dealing with, you know, a proactive policy approach to saying, OK, our homelessness policy, our housing policy, our anti-poverty policy are all aligned. How do we align that with the more, you know, the, the policies that have got more teeth around planning, which are slightly longer, but that would be, you know, a more you know, a more effective way over the long term. But actually, they are still long-term measures. And, you know, what are we doing now about these short-term measures? You know, there are things that Mike was talking about in terms of council tax, you know, reductions in certain areas. Councils still have control around that. You know, accessing, you know, those who don't claim their benefits, you know, and find out how those areas are. And the one thing I just want to say quickly is that local council got really good in lockdown at identifying those hard-to-reach areas, you know, especially through you can make, like, comparisons with Chest and Trace at a national level, which failed to do that at a local level. And councils have been very good at identifying and doing that hyper-local approach. And I think that's somewhere where they can really have positive impact on accessing those hard-to-reach individuals, those vulnerable residents, to try and, you know, be better at that. And, you know, I think that is an immediate, a shorter-term opportunity for councils to affect kind of this year. So, so just on that last point about the, the, the COVID response and how that can influence what councils are doing now, I mean, data was absolutely key to the COVID response. So what data might councils hold that they can use to understand who they need to support now? Well, I'm hoping that actually the, the, it, the, the COVID kind of pandemic and that need to access that really difficult to find data has kind of catalyzed many councils. Actually, no, obviously I was at, I was in um, South Cambridge and, and Cambridge City at that particular time, and they were very good at collecting that really hyper local data, at, you know, of who's there and in those those very kind of harder to reach communities, like you mentioned, around those maybe where English isn't first language or there's social deprivation issues, people don't get involved in in kind of council business too much, and holding those records. But it's really important that now we you know, use the opportunity around how we collect it, maintain it and ensure that data is accurate, you know, to not just have used that for, for one particular thing, but use it for the next, you know, the, you know, supporting those communities through this, you know, this next crisis, which is essentially a cost of living crisis or whatever the next thing might be that we have to support those residents with. So, you know, you, you want the, you want technology. We are in 2021. We should be thinking about how councils are using good technological solutions to do this. And some councils are much further ahead, I suppose, in that respect um, than others. But I do think it's kind of catalyzed a need to understand that really hyper local local data that can actually then go back. And if there's a reasonable thread back to central government and inform you know, their own, you know, we should be collecting this in a standardised way. So actually interventions at national level can also mirror what we've learned locally through these particular pieces, whether it be COVID or, you know, moving into the cost of living. I, I was keen to sort of unpack some of the things you talked about earlier about how councils can really 
you know, use their influence to, to join things up and have really cohesive policies. And, you know, housing and planning and policy, I know it's one of your, your specialisms. So, I mean, what, what does a, a housing and planning policy look like which, which alleviates poverty? <laughs> That's a great question. If I had the answer to that, I think I'd be, um, you know, I wouldn't be here talking to you today. But I, I think, you know, housing policies in some ways are a little bit easier to kind of approach because they're not dealt with in the same way as, as, as planning policy. I mean, planning policy in terms of a local plan is a statutory piece that's independently examined. It's got a huge amount of political noise around it. And I think, as we all know, it's not part of this conversation. They're very difficult to have in place. Planning policies are really powerful because they provide, you know, a weighted policy there that, you know, is in, is in place. But actually, because so many authorities don't have local plans in place with good, strong policies around housing, around tenure, type of tenure, around their, hand, their land use, and I think that Helen mentioned tenure, you know, it's no good us building indiscriminately houses just to reach housing numbers. It's the type of houses that we need for people to be able to afford them. And that is a mixture of saying, OK, we're going to have a housing strategy that we can build under our housing revenue account within the councils, but also a strategy for how we you know, invest, invest our, you know, money or borrow money to invest in regeneration schemes, but then also how we align our planning policy to make sure that private development and private development is building at the same standards. And actually, it, it, it's ironic, actually, you know, one of the interesting things, and we haven't really got onto energy yet, but it's about, you know, we need to be building energy efficient housing all the way through from, you know, whether it's private development or it's council development. And, you know, one of the lack of alignments I've seen is that planning policy is saying, oh, yes, we need to build houses that are, you know, a fabric first and, you know, are energy efficient right now to reduce fuel quality, poverty, whereas council's housing strategies are still saying, oh, we're not doing that until 2028 or 2029. And this disparity between, you know, council departments, I think, could be a really quick win in terms of making sure there's a consistent approach to doing that, because actually we should not be building houses right now that are not fabric first and not fuel efficient because we're going to have to pay huge amounts of money out of the public purse to retrofit all of the huge amounts of stock that are problematic right now. And that's a, you know, that's a real big issue with the fuel poverty issue at the moment. Is there much that councils can do as the, as the custodians of the local economy with regards to the supply chain and how can they, how can they use that to sort of diminish some of these inequalities? Well, I mean, Councils are big buyers, right? You know, we, we buy lots of things, you know, that, that we can stimulate supply chains through our own procurement, you know, and, you know, lots of councils have procurement opportunities in place to stimulate the local economy or to stimulate specific directions for that local economy, whether it be sort of clean tech or looking at stimulating local businesses or putting clauses in contracts around skills and having local people involved. So there are definitely things that can be done in that area. I think that that's, you know, but you know, like I was saying, you know, and your point is so valid, is that eight years of austerity or 10 years of austerity of what we've seen, what that's done is it's, it's managed, councils managed to deliver services, but it's taken all, all of the forward thinking, all of the horizon scanning, all of the kind of research and development, if you like, 
skills out of councils to be thinking about those proactive things that we should be doing. So actually now we're relying on partners, we're relying on other, other suppliers to help with that, but we've got a big gap in there that we're just kind of scrabbling to go, okay, we need those things in place because this would make a real difference, this would make a real difference. Where well, that might have been going on naturally over the last eight years, should they have not had to cut budgets in areas where we think, oh, that's not a statutory service or that's not something we've cut that post out. So it's um, it's really interesting to think about those things that we should have been putting in place but have not managed to do so just through those, you know, those problems with funding. And what about local labour markets? I mean, can, can councils get really influential in making those, Sarah? I think it's I think it's realistic to work with partners. I mean, you, you know, I think it's really important to remember that actually, you know, especially, you know, in the 21st century, councils are not, you know, and cannot continue to be isolated islands. You know, they have to work with partnerships in around them, whether they be the local businesses, whether it be, you know, in areas, the complicated areas like Cambridgeshire, which has got three tiers of authorities that are responsible for different things. There is a need to be working externally and in a partnership approach. And actually, I think lots of businesses are really keen to engage with councils about how they can, you know, ensure that they're you know, they're delivering both, you know, environmentally, economically and socially on the ground. So that that effect in terms of saying, OK, well, we need we need to as councils, we need to be paying, you know, the living wage across the board. But what about our contracts? What about our partners? How are we helping? How are we helping them do the same thing? And then how are we doing that in our own procurement? So there's kind of three levels of it. And I do think that, that you can have influence in that as, as local authorities. And I think that's some way that we should be pushing. I think that that's for me, an economic development function. And, and I think that that is something that's sorely missed from a lot of council structures at the moment. And actually, it's something that really needs to be part of that because that local economic development picks up all of those kind of skills issues as well. And I'm just keen now to open up our conversation a little bit. And I was going to ask, turn to you again, Mike. And I wanted to ask, I mean, do you think that councils, do, do they need to make a pitch to the government for powers to, to tackle this, or do they do they actually do they have the powers already? Is, is it just down to the a lot of it down to the, the initiative of the local policymaker? Well, I suspect they might want to make a pitch for funds. Uh, if, 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 I, I, I'm not sure whether they, whether they would think say that they have the right powers or not, um, but I expect they could definitely make a pitch for for funds. I, I mentioned the household support fund earlier on, which central government is making a big deal of as it's the, the thing that it, it hopes will allow councils to to help the cost of living crisis but when you well, actually would quite a lot of that is is earmarked or effectively going on free school meal programs for children some of it has to be earmarked for for the older population i mean it's it's really kind of you know already quite a lot of it spent already and it's not going to go very far so they could definitely be lobbying for pay uh even, even if sorry for funds even if they think they have the powers can i ask you helen i mean you know, can to what extent do you think councils can seize the initiative and make a really, really big difference here? Um, I mean, they clearly can. There's lots of things that they we've all talked about, things they can do. I mean, the other things I think they, they could and should be pitching for are on the housing one, uh, keeping the receipts from right to buy so that they can, and being able to be much more flexible about how you use those. That's one thing I think they should be really pushing for. And obviously in some areas, they are now starting to get more powers over skills provision but actually more areas being able to uh, get the control over skills would be good. And those things, I mean, we've got more areas now starting to get things like bus franchising powers. 
those again, those are things that they should be pitching for. And actually, one of the things that was very good to see in the levelling up white paper was there is now this kind of set ladder around devolution. So the government have for the first time spelt out the different levels of devolution you can pitch for as a local area and what money and powers would go with each. And that's very clear. The further along that you can go, the more you will get this kind of power. So that feels to me something it's worth trying to take that initiative and getting as much as you can. Paul, what's your view on the extent that councils can really seize initiative here? Yeah, I mean, I totally agree with the with the HRA and the, and the um, right to buy piece. I think that's just, you know, it's something that's really important. But I would say that actually that only applies to kind of housing revenue account funds in councils. And actually, councils are building through their general fund now. So they, you know, and this has been partly driven by the need to get um, a return on investment to be able to prop up some of their services. And it's not worked wholly well in many areas, but at the same time, I do think it's an important part of the mix because it enables the councils to actively be in the housing market where they're not subject to, you know, subject to right to buy receipts. And they can say, okay, these are the tenures we need. You know, these are the sort of social housing. And as long as they can make it work, you know, look, you know, we know that there's a difference in land values across the geography in, in the UK. But, you know, this is certainly not an excuse for places that have got decent land values that they should be able to be able to be building houses and, you know, ensuring that there's affordability there, actual real affordability. And I'm not talking about, you know, market discount because in high land value areas, that doesn't still doesn't make it affordable. We're talking about proper affordable housing, you know, for people to put roofs over their heads. And I do think that that's a an area to continue to push in. I worry that government have seen some of that commercial investment and are nervous about it. But if there is, a, you know, if there's an issue with it, then, you know, I can see where there could be risk. Um, and I think there needs to be parameters around it. But I think SIP has looked at it already and it's something that council should still be definitely doing. A mix of HRI and general fund building, I think. The other thing that when I was last autumn, I was talking to various councils about the housing piece. The other thing actually I heard from both Labour and Conservative councils was wanting stronger powers to... Uh, on compulsory purchase where landlords are refusing to sell because they want to push up the price and also more powers to force quicker build-out rates for developers. And I heard from both from both parties that they would like to have that power to be able to have more influence on their local housing market. I want to finish by asking you all, what's, what do you think is the single thing that councils have the power to do now that can make a really big difference Paul, do you want to start with that? A nice, easy question. What's the, what's the single... I think, and I'm not going to go for a really obvious thing, is I think it's really important, certainly this year, and this is not a direct piece to give money back out to residents and communities, it's getting their house in order in terms of how they, look, how they see their data, getting understanding across those key areas for me, revenues and benefits, um, housing and planning, and there's probably other areas there. So we have an understanding, councils have an understanding of where their biggest issues are lying so that they can direct their resources effectively to those areas. So areas, more deprived areas, those areas on the cusp of bits we don't hear about so much. So I think there's a data piece around there that's really important before we start throwing money out the door. So that was one for me. Mike, what's, what's your recommendation? Um... They should probably get used, I think, to using that council tax system again as a way of handing out money. I fear it may not be a one-off, and it, and and they should probably, 
you know, think what needs to be done to make sure that if the government, central government does choose so, that the local council tax mechanism is able to reach kind of all, all the residents who should be getting some support. And Helen? Uh, so I would say reviving and turbocharging their income maximisation strategies. So making sure that all of the money that is available through any any door, that it is incredibly easy for people to access it. That, you know, there is a kind of wherever you go for help, you'll be able to get access to all the help available and you're not having to search through a maze to find where you might be eligible. Brilliant. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of The Local Authority. Um, thank you to my panel. It's Mike Brewer, Helen Bernard and Paul Frayner. We'll be back again soon. Thank you for listening. This podcast was brought to you by LGC and TPX Impact. Local Government Chronicle, or LGC, is the leading title for senior local government officers and the authoritative voice of the sector. To subscribe to LGC for full online and print access, go to lgcplus.com. TPX Impact is a change agency on a mission to build 21st century public sector institutions which are catalysts for change in the internet and climate era to radically improve outcomes for communities. For more information, go to tpximpact.com. TPX Impact, transformation that matters.